Socialism, a podcast hosted by the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, specifically through its Religion and Socialism Working Group. I'm Sarah New, and together with my producer, Devin Brisky, we conduct deep dive interviews with religious activists and thinkers on radical politics and faith. Today we have a pretty interesting interview with Maxine Phillips. She leads DSA's Religion and Socialism Working Group nationally, as well as I think leads up the efforts here in New York City. She's a retired executive editor of Dissent, a former co-editor of the print edition of Religious Socialism, which we'll get into in this interview. We used to have print. And she's a current volunteer editor of the Democratic Left, which is a quarterly that DSA sends out to all its members. She's also been, and this is quite important to her, an active member of Judson Memorial Church in New York City for more than 40 years. Maxine is how I got involved um, doing this podcast. She was the one who pitched it to me. And we met up, I think, in um, a chocolate kind of cafe in Park Slope just after a prayer meeting she went to. And so we talked about prayer, we talked about faith and politics. And, um, you know, as a very good organizer, she said, do you do what do you do? And she said, you know, I've been meaning to do a podcast. Would you be willing to do it? And I said, okay, Uh, I have no audio experience, however. And when I met Devin, that's how everything kind of came together. But um, yeah, so this podcast owes so much to Maxine's vision and her organizing prowess. And um, I think you'll find what she has to say about DSA history, kind of insights into the differences between each generation of DSA and kind of her reflections on the parallels and differences between church and socialist space is really interesting. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Um, thank you so much for making time to chat with the podcast that you well, envisioned. Thank you for coming over. Got me to do. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, I think we we met in early 2017. I want to say maybe mm-hmm. February. I was going through emails to jog my memory, being like in Stumptown Coffee or some coffee shop near NYU. It was a chocolate. Really? No, it was the, oh, chocolate, the chocolate bar place. in but Park I think Slope. That was, was it this? Was that? Yes, yes, a chocolate yeah, bar right. in Park Slope. <laughs> You came after your prayer meetings. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, and Maxine's a very wonderful person. I'm excited for everyone to like get to know her more, or maybe you've gotten some of her emails in the past, and you see her name pop up in different places. Um, and you were the one who first kind of proposed the idea of a podcast and said, hey, you have some journalism skills, would you be willing to do it? And that's how this basically got started. Um, do you want to maybe tell people a little bit about all the different hats or roles you wear? Uh, within DSA, but also like outside of DSA, just to give people a full sense of the breadth of all you do. Well, um, I joke that I'm uh, one of those legacy members of DSA. <laughs> I was in the predecessor, one of the predecessor organizations, the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, and uh, I came to that through my church. I was in a discussion group on corporate capitalism at the church, and. Um, at the at the end of the uh, of the discussion group, one of the co-authors of the book, Mark Kesselman, who was a professor of political science at Columbia at the time, came to talk to the group, and he said, "Really, socialism is the only thing that is going to fight corporate capitalism." Mm. And um, I said, uh, "Socialists have no chance in this country. Third parties are, you know, a non-starter because of the way the system is set up." And then somebody else, um, who, who'd always been a, a wonderful social justice person in the church, said, yes, but Michael Harrington has an organization that is working within the Democratic Party to move it to the left, and they are socialists. So I looked them up in the phone book, and I called them. This is around what time? Uh, like? I think this was like 1977. 1977. Okay, got it. Yeah, so back when we had phone books. Yeah. Um, and I looked them up in the phone book, and I called them up and they sent me a packet of material and I sent them a check and they sent me a membership card and then I got the newsletter and I, I'm a professional uh, editor and writer and uh, I looked at the newsletter and I said, oh, do these people need help? And so I wrote... They would mail you the newsletter. They mailed me the okay. newsletter, right. Um, the internet may have existed for some people but it certainly didn't exist uh, for the average citizen at that time. So... Um, so I wrote back and I said, I'm happy to volunteer with your newsletter, you know, get in touch. And I never heard from them. And then <clears throat> one day um, I got a notice in the mail that the, the local chapter was having a meeting. 
And I, up at that, until that time, I was active in my local democratic club, which was the Village Independent Democrats. And we were, at that time, and I think they still are fairly, um, um, certainly progressive, uh, but at that time, they were very um, reform-minded. You know, they had kind of taken on Tammany Hall and... Um, uh, hard to believe this now, but Ed Koch was, um, mm. for those who remember him, <laughs> how he died a conservative. But at that time, he was a, he was an anti-war um, oh, liberal. Yeah. And, so you like uh, met him? Oh, I campaigned for him. I even have a oh. I have a cartoon, uh, you know, a caricature that some famous artist did of him, signed by him thanking me for the work on his campaign. Um, uh, when he ran for Congress, but at that time, you know, he was against the war in Vietnam. He was he was a reformer. He was for openness in politics, um, and it's always, uh, you know, it's certainly always a lesson in how you have to keep your elected officials <laughs> with their nose to the grindstone <laughs> and not let them forget where they came from. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, anyway, my local Democratic club was involved. You know, we worked on Bella Abzug's campaign. She was a very uh, militant anti-war candidate, um, uh, one of the, you know, one of the most outspoken women in Congress and definitely a leftist. Um, and uh, so I went to the, the local New York City chapter and um, was, was so impressed because they had an agenda, they had time budgeting, uh, I met all these interesting people, and, and we did a three-month plan of what we were planning to do for the for the chapter. And I thought I had always thought that socialists were kind of disorganized, and you spent hours, you know, until midnight at meetings, and then only the people who could survive that long got to make decisions. <laughs> so this was a completely new way of uh, thinking about uh, thinking about. Politics. I mean, I, I would go to the Democratic Club meetings and I would sit there and I would crochet and listen to speech after speech, but there was never much um, Democratic uh, mm. participation. So this, of course, was a much smaller group, um, but got really, really interested in it. And as a result, uh, at that time, the New York chapter shared, I'm not sure we even had a, a paid staff person at that time, although we did get one later, um, but we worked out of the national office, which was um, near Union Square. So then I got to meet people in the national office, and, and at one point the national director said to me, well, I know you're interested, you know, you're active in your church. I go to Judson Church. So at that time, I was in the social action committee, um, and he said, you know, we at DSA, we have, a, we have a religion and socialism group. So then I got to meet them. We put out a... Um, a quarterly uh, magazine here. I'm showing um, Sarah. Oh, this is this is some one from 1980 oh, uh, when it was well. it came in print. I'm I probably typed that on a mimeograph uh, form. You can tell it's it's written with a typewriter. Mm -hmm. um, so um, and I know there are people who don't even know what a mimeograph machine is, but or was. Um, but in those days, that's what you did. You typed it on a form and then you ran it off on. Um, on a machine, and then you folded it, and um, I think that's probably an eight-pager. So this is something you s helped edit. I helped edit. You didn't I didn't start it. Yeah, no, I didn't start it. John Court had started it, I think, like around um, 76 or 77, uh, about the time I joined, but I wasn't aware of it at that time. And then by the time I got active, uh, and then... I think by 1980, I was on staff, so I was, I was around. Mm. Um, I mean, over the years, what happened, I got, I got more and more involved, and uh, I wanted to make my work life coincide with my volunteer work. Yeah. So I ended up being hired as the uh, managing editor of Democratic Left, which was, at that time, a monthly publication of, of uh, Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. And then once I was on staff, I could justify taking the time to both edit and, as I said, uh, I'm pretty sure I typed this <laughs> this piece. Yeah. Um, I like how at the bottom of the newsletter is an, uh, an altar call, uh -huh. <laughs> a.k.a. call for anyone who's not members to join, which I really like, someone who grew up with altar calls. Got it. And who, who received 
these kind of newsletter things. I mean, the one I'm holding in my hands is like maybe three articles, one by Harvey Cox, one by Dorothy Sillow, and the one by Arthur Wasco, um, who are all like pretty prominent Exactly, thinkers. and they were all yeah. members of DSA at that time. Oh, I think wow. Arthur, Arthur Wasco no longer is. I think he... he uh, he still runs, uh, the, I think, the Shalom Center in, in Philadelphia, um, but is basically oriented toward um, uh, climate and, and ecological work and uh, not so much socialism. Harvey Cox, at that time, everyone was still reading Harvey Cox in, in college um, and in seminary. Uh, and now, uh, you know, and he, he was teaching at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, Dorte Zola was a very prominent Marxist theologian from Germany, and she, um, she was teaching one semester a year at Union Theological Seminary, and as soon as she got to the United States, she said, so where's the socialist movement here? Mm -hmm. Because she was, she was a committed um, socialist, and she... Uh, so she joined DSA and, and got very involved, and we would often at conventions or at conferences that we ran, uh, she would be a main speaker. She was a, a wonderful writer and poet also. So she was always pushing DSA to do more, more about beauty and, and art. Um, you know, she, mm. would, uh, she had poetry, and, and uh, she felt it was not a, not a waste of time sure. to have a, uh, a workshop where you read poems and thought of, you know, and thought about things. And so, um, now I'm looking at this particular one. Uh, so people would, people could subscribe. I see this is 1980, um, and, uh, <laughs> it was $3 for it. So that probably just about covered our, uh, I think at the time, $3 a year. A year. Yeah. yeah. It only came out four times a year. Um, and we used a bulk rate, um, postage because although I do remember there were times we would have these mailing parties where we'd sit in my living room <laughs> and put stamps on them um, uh, but um, you could you could subscribe to this um, without being a member without calling yourself a socialist mm. you could just subscribe and we were actually um, handled by subscription agencies I think uh, EBSCO uh, subscription agency covered it. I still, to this day, occasionally will get something from a library saying, you know, we're missing three copies of, of religious socialism. Can you give me the, the back copies and stuff like that? Um, we stopped in print, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, whenever John Court died. What was the peak of its circulation? Yeah, three, 300, 350 maybe. And was uh, it clergy members, do you know? Or? Uh, a lot of them were clergy, but there were a lot of libraries. John, uh, John was a journalist, and he had been active. He had been at the Catholic Worker with Dorothy Day, and he... He was relentless. <laughs> he, like when he got an idea, he just he just followed it through to the end. And he said, "We're going to get libraries because once in those days, once a library subscribed, uh, you had that subscription for life, pretty much. They rarely looked at their subscriptions and and said, "Oh well, we should cancel this." And especially something that was three dollars a year, they weren't going to cancel. So he said. Uh, libraries are are the lifeblood of a magazine, mm. and um, so. I probably in this file have a list of who all the subscribers were, but uh, you know the rest were individuals. Um, many of whom are still active in DSA today. Mm -hmm. um, and then about um, over the years, you know, it became like uh, John had been the editor. I became co-editor with him. There was someone else. We eventually got to a system of four editors, and each one of us would be responsible for an issue. And um, and then life, you know, life took over. We all had uh, families and yeah. different things going on. John was getting older. Um, so anyway. Can, can I ask, that is, here it says, uh, quarterly newsletter of the Religion and Socialism Committee of the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. So it's like a committee within a committee. Right. When the, does the organizing committee become the DSA? As well, well that's, that was an interesting thing. I, I don't know exactly how that works. Uh, at one point we became a commission. I think we had to get chartered by whatever the equivalent of the... Um, now we call it the National Political Committee. Uh, in those days, it was the National Executive Committee. Uh, but 
what does it mean for DSA to be an organizing committee? At oh, an organizing committee. That's, uh, I think that, um, that phrase comes from, I believe, from the labor movement. You know, there, there was the farm, farm workers organizing committee or so on. So it's the step before you become the movement. Oh, I see. Okay. And so we were the organizing committee. We were definitely not a third party. Um, Michael Harrington always used to refer to us as the left wing of the possible. So our goal was to push the Democratic Party as far left as it could go. So at that point and in time when you heard about it, we we already sort of committed to socialist politics, but you just didn't think it was feasible to enact them in a sort of well, I, you know, I third didn't party really, manner. Yeah, I didn't really know that much about okay. socialist politics. That was not something that was ever taught in any school. So I what drew to, you in when you first right. heard? Well, I had grown up, though, with liberal parents okay. in a... In a fairly conservative community. Um, the story I always tell is I went back to my 30th high school reunion and uh, this guy comes up to me and he says, oh, I remember you, you were so political. And I said, really? Because <laughs> you know, I don't remember that at all. All I wanted to do was get out of that place. And uh, he said, yeah, you wore a Kennedy button to school. I was afraid to. My family, were, we were Democrats, but I was scared to wear a Kennedy where, button. Where in the U.S. were you? This was in Her outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, you know, 50, more than 50 years ago. So, so that was his idea of political, that I was brave enough to wear a Kennedy button. Yeah. And, um, and I remember there was exactly one other person uh, wearing one, <laughs> and, and we met each other. We were in different tracks. She was in the business track. I was in the academic track. And we would never have met except that we saw these Kennedy buttons and we became uh, good friends. Now you're wearing a rose button. And now I'm wearing my rose, rose button, right. So, um, uh, so my parents were liberals. They were social workers. Uh, and my dad, my mom was an immigrant. She had come at age eight from Italy. And... Um, Southern Italy. Southern Italy, yeah, um, before they slammed the gate shut. So my, um, my take on that is that her, her gut instinct is always for the, for the underdog, and she had a lot of resentment against, um, against the way she was treated. You know, she was eight years old. They put her in kindergarten, and um, she was furious, you know, <laughs> Mm -hmm. Because she knew she she could do eight year old work or whatever. She came that. around early nineteen. Uh, it was in the early twenties. Early twenties. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and she learned English very fast, but never spoke English. You know, her parents didn't, and she always had to be the translator. Um, and the push in those days was very much to assimilate. And I, I know the resentment she had about how Italians were portrayed in the media at that time. Of course, Al Capone. You know, all the the yeah. mafia. And then the portrayal of women as, you know, sex pots, and the men as, as criminals, the women as sex pots. It was, you know, so she, she had a lot of that anger. But also, I realized much later, and I think about immigrant children today, how traumatized I think she was by the Sacco Vanzetti trial. Um, mm -hmm. And Sacco and Vanzetti were Italian anarchists who were um, accused of murdering uh, someone in a robbery, and they were, they were um, um, I don't know if the electric chair, I can't remember whether they were hanged or the electric chair at that time, it was the 20s, and it actually mobilized in Europe, millions of people were out on the street protesting this verdict, and in the United States there, were, there was quite an outcry about it too, and a, a while ago, the governor of Massachusetts actually did pardon them, you know, posthumously, obviously. Mm -hmm. But at the time, uh, it did a lot to silence the Italian community uh, because it was clear they were going to go after anybody who had expressed um, the political sentiments that were not uh, part of the mainstream. So my mother... So the Italian left in particular. Yeah. But the Italian yeah. right is not produced. Well, they, they do really well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, it was just really interesting to... And I, of course, I didn't realize this as a, as a child, that the um, the impact of, of that on her as a child and then later on both my parents of the McCarthy era, mm -hmm. because my dad... Later, you know, told me he had voted for Norman Thomas, who was the Socialist Party candidate for president um, in 1932. And then later he told me that his father had voted for Eugene Debs. Mm -hmm. So, wow. 
So this was a family that was, you know, working class, and they saw who was representing their interests. But then Franklin, as we all know, Franklin Roosevelt took a lot of the Socialist Party uh, platform. So my dad always voted Democratic after that because of Roosevelt and because he felt the, the system was totally stacked. So he always used to say to me, the role of socialists is to hold out the farthest left position and then other people will move toward it and then you can get something. <laughs> and yeah. um, so... Um, and then he was uh, he was a government employee, and uh, and he didn't have you know the support of a party or a, a, since I have come to New York, I've met people whose parents lost their jobs. They were communist party members, and they they suffered enormously, and the children suffered too. But they did have that community that kind of sustained them uh, in their uh, in their suffering, and I think my parents didn't have that. They were never Socialist Party members. I mean, but the Socialist Party was just decimated um, after World War One, and then with McCarthy. I mean, the Socialist Party wasn't even considered um, a threat or anything, but it hardly existed. So, um, and they were, they were not communists. Um, and so I grew, I had grown up with those ideas around the house, but I didn't really know very much and after I joined um, DSOC, then I asked friends, you know, what should I be reading? And um, I joined a Marxist study group um, that some other friends had. They were in a different group. Um, and, and DSOC had a socialist school at that time. I mean, the big difference between then and now is real estate. <laughs> we could, once we raised money, we would have, we had an annual dinner you know, we called it the Debs Thomas dinner, and and those remnants still exist in other parts of the country. Uh, Detroit just had a Debs Douglas dinner, and 300 people came, and and they raised money that way f to keep their chapter going. Uh, Chicago has um, has a an annual dinner. It's an old fashioned way. You would usually get the labor unions to take tables and so on. Um, so we would raise money, and we were able to rent space, and we had a socialist school. So we said Detroit, Chicago just had these dinners. Detroit's DSA, DSA, uh, yeah, as a whole, not just the religion. Itself. Right? No, no, oh, no, okay. no. They uh, they just had it, and uh, Rashid Tlaib was given an award oh, and spoke okay. at it. Got and um, I think Chicago, a lot of a lot of uh, because it's so expensive these days to have events. Um, a lot of them have switched to cocktail party, you know, <laughs> wine and cheese receptions or whatever. But um, we would make enough in New York to hire a staff person and to, and to pay for uh, space. So we had space. We ran a socialist school. Mm -hmm. So I started going to all the classes. Um, we had a lot of, you know, one of, one of our strengths and weaknesses is that we have a lot of academics. <laughs> so they would do these Socialism 101 um, things and we had some really really good people um, so I, I just started educating myself and I know the local chapter now has um, political education committees um, in every borough and they um, I think the uh, the immigrant justice group is working on a, a one-day school on uh, immigration issues coming up in the next mm -hmm. month or two um, so, so that tradition continues, but what's really difficult now is finding space uh, for anything for a large group. I think the local chapters have a lot of trouble finding spaces for, I mean, even for our convention. Yeah. Uh, once a year. They've been able to rent Judson, but they've really had to limit it. I mean, the convention used to be 30, 40 people. We would have workshops. It would be a real educational, a real community building kind of thing. Uh, now it's it's just all business, um, you know, which is necessary, but we, we can't find the space. Um, so, well, I guess to rewind a little bit, what was that moment like when you started hearing more about socialism explicitly and you start connecting the dots between the stuff you remember hearing in childhood? Like what about it kind of, was it a moment of kind of crystallization or a moment of, just kind of curious what it felt like? Uh, well, it just felt very exciting. It was wonderful to to meet people who cared that much. I, I was working in, I was working for a social welfare organization, mm. but um, 
you know, those are dependent on the largesse of, of the government and of rich people who give donations. And to be in an organization where the members uh, were paying, and it was mainly members in labor unions uh, at that time, unions were losing power, but nothing like what it is today. And they still had some money that they, and they had left-wing leaders who were members uh, who put money into the organization. So there was this sense of these were people who were who were lifelong, they had all lived through um, terrible experiences. I, I remember meeting people who'd been in the Flint sit-down strike. They'd been beaten up. I, you know, you had the sense that you were with people who had made history. Um, and, you know, you would go to conventions, and, and at that point, you know, people were making documentaries about some of these people. And, and here they were in the flesh, you know, like they were 80 years old, and you'd see footage of them in a newsreel from when they were 50 or 40 at, at a strike. Um, so, so there was this sense of, an, of a, a movement that was continuing and that you could mm. give your life to. So that not, was very exciting. <laughs> not too dissimilar from the feeling of, I think, someone coming into a religion yeah. or joining a religious movement. I mean, you've been part of the church, Judson, for a long time. You've been part of, um, you know, DSOC and now DSA for a long time. Sometimes I ask people, what do you see uh, are the parallels between religious and socialist movements, uh, dif differences, mm -hmm. just from your vantage point? Well, one thing that really struck me, and I've thought about this, um, is that when I joined the socialist movement, I had the sense of joining a truly international movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. At that time, we belonged to the Socialist International. Um, I think we withdrew recently. It has gone through a lot of changes. Um, but I felt that there were people all over the world fighting for the same things in different ways and, and countries at different stages of, of the, the struggle. And I, I remember thinking to myself, I've never thought that way about Christianity. Hmm. Um, and part of it was I think that um, I think U.S. Christianity is very different. Uh, well, yeah, both. I can't speak for Catholicism because I'm not Catholic, but. Uh, certainly U.S. Protestantism is different from what you find in Europe, and so is, uh, from everything I gather, so is U.S. Catholicism. So, so you didn't ha I didn't ever have that sense of, of mm. being part of an international movement the way, uh, and because our family was liberal, uh, we, we grew up Methodist, um, and of course the Methodists have a, a come out of a working class tradition, the coal miners, John Wesley, so on. However, you know, as we've certainly seen, unfortunately, now, um, continues to be on the wrong side of history. Um, so there weren't a ton of, of Methodist churches that were out there. Uh, when I was a young, you know, when I was in college, uh, the civil rights movement was um, was going, and I was um, drawn to that first. I mean, what I had been involved with before uh, DSOC was uh, first the civil rights movement, then the anti-war movement, that's the anti-Vietnam War movement, and then the National Welfare Rights Organization. So all of my political work was around um, equality, fairness, and economic justice. Um, you know, the idea that, and certainly I was against the war, but it was also, at that time, Lyndon Johnson had the war on poverty, and the war, uh, the, the real war, the war in Vietnam was taking all the money from that. So yep. we couldn't do the things that, uh, that we had voted for him. Yep. Um, probably not me, because I don't think the voting age was, uh, sure, sure. I didn't vote till I was, tw I couldn't vote till I was 21. Um, so, so those were the things, and especially the National Welfare Rights Organization uh, was very active in that. And so it all came together with socialism, um, the especially the economic part. Yeah. Um, what are some continues you see between DSA then and DSA now? You mentioned a big difference would be the real estate. Well, just that it's, I mean, and, and of course the size. I mean, we yeah, were always, like, we, every, we knew everybody, right? Um, I remember uh, just before we took off, like before the 2016, I got a call from the person who was the local chapter uh, co-chair, or maybe I didn't get a call, maybe I got an email, I don't know. 
saying, uh, hey, we're having our national, our national convention, not our national, we're having the citywide convention at Judson. Uh, so I was usually able to help them, you know, they would use my name and they could get Judson, um, although I think now they can just get it. Um, but, uh, and you're, the, you're not running for office, so can you chair the convention? <laughs> you know? and I was like, yeah, sure. And, um, you know, they were like, we were just beginning, you know, Bernie was beginning to campaign, so we were actually, it was the first time I'd been at a meeting in quite a while um, where there were people under 30. And they were kind of horrified by some of the um, some of the older older lefties who, um, you know, wanted me to have the agenda and to call to follow all the you know Robert's rules and stuff. And we had gotten so small that we weren't um, paying. Any, I prefer to to run things by consensus anyway. So I was like, oh right, the agenda. Uh, you know, like the motion to do this or that, and and I'm I'm a fan of of that for um, you know for contentious meetings, and and I'm not against using procedures, but we had been so small that we never had you know we really didn't have to, except at national conventions, uh, but the local meetings were all just a group of comrades, and. Um, so that was like the last time we could have our citywide convention in the basement of Judson. The next time it was like 500 people in the in the main. Uh, next time being area. around 20. The next year, I well, when was that? Like 2017, maybe. So after Trump. I'm trying to think. It was when uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez came to seek our um, uh, our endorsement. Yeah, I remember yeah. that because. I mean, the place was packed, and I wanted a table to talk about the religion and socially. And you know, and in the past, you could, yeah, you want a table? We have plenty of space. You know? mm -hmm. And this time, it was like, well, I don't know. I mean, we've got a, you know, the fire laws. We can only have a certain number of people. Mm. I don't know that there's going to be a, a table. And um, so, whenever that was, that she, when was she elected? I, I should know I this, remember. of course. But yes, I understand. But I remember she good. came she came and she spoke and I remember thinking, Wow, she's a firebrand, wonderful. She doesn't have a chance. I mean that was my own personal opinion. I voted, of course, to endorse her and, and some of the older people actually got up and said, Well, she doesn't have a chance, but of course we'll endorse her. And then she won. It was it was just <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah. well, um what do you say about some of the in terms of differences in approaches and mentalities between like people who came through DSA earlier on in the seventies or eighties versus people who are joining in the in recent years, myself included, do you see any demographical differences besides age, obviously, or kind of differences in approach or philosophy or what have you? Yeah, I mean, well, there are a couple of different things. Um, I think it's a much more diverse group than it used to be. Um, which I think is very exciting. It's still overwhelmingly white. Um, the country well, is still... about gender? Yeah, and gender too. Although, I have to say, um, I mean, I don't know the latest figures, but 40 years ago it was 70% men and 30% women. And when I came back, I, got, I, I took quite a while where I wasn't that active because I was raising a family. And, mm. and therefore, all my energy was going into the church. I chaired the Sunday school committee and... We had our kids out there at demonstrations, but you know I wasn't going to leave them to go off, mm. um, go off. And as a result, uh, you know my kids go to demonstrate. We're you know a family that demonstrates together, you know, stays together or whatever. Um, so um, uh, when I came back to to act to be more active after I retired. I was really shocked, uh, and even even with the religion group, you go to any religious. Uh, well, I can only speak for white Protestantism, right? But you go to any religious, any church, and you'll see a majority women, right? You go to a DSA religion and socialism meeting, and it's still majority men. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that. Um, which just um, so I don't know whether it's the space doesn't feel, I mean, you know, there's been the feminist movement. There are a lot of spaces for women to express themselves politically that didn't exist before. So um, certainly in New York City, women have taken over, you know, there's a lot of uh, leadership from women. Um, and 
Um, but I'm still kind of amazed when I go to, uh, I don't, I'm not that active locally because I'm doing a lot at the, at the national level. Um, but when I go to meetings, it's still, I, I count all the time, <laughs> you know, and it's still a majority men. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really don't know. Um, I mean, yeah. back in the day, I, I would have said it was a hostile environment. I mean, not so much, um, not that you felt threatened as a woman, but the, the style it was that that left wing style of of combativeness, and I used to think, well, this is the way people who don't have any power act toward each other. You know, they they're constantly battling each other because they don't have the power to ba- battle the um, the structure, you know, the the, uh, the overall uh, oppressors. I hate to use this kind of jargon and stuff, but. Um, and and the women in those days too, you know, I've joked with some of the people who came in around the same time I did, and I said like, oh, what would it have been like under the Me Too, you know? <laughs> and they said, well, what I remember is the women, you know. And we were like, yeah, because any woman who made it up into leadership in those days had to be really thick-skinned and, <laughs> yeah, shall we say, um, mm. able to play the the games. Um, and and uh, they were they were tough. Um, so so a lot of that was good. Um, it made me. I think the older people have a sense that we're in this for the long haul. Mm-hmm. You know, I I mean we're we're like amazed. We'll read on Facebook. Well, I've been a member of DSA for two years and we haven't changed the world. Or I, I don't know. You know, we didn't get this passed or whatever. I'm leaving. And we're like, what? You know, like, here is the most incredible, wonderful moment of our, uh, well, not s- since the 60s, right? This is mm. the most uh, exciting moment for, for uh, progressive politics. And you're leaving because you didn't get something after two years. Um, so so I think that's one thing, that the, the older people have a perspective that sometimes, uh, you know, I mean, you need that, that balance um, because the young people have this drive and the idealism and the energy, and they don't, they haven't yet found out about the compromises that you have to make and so on, and they, they don't want to make the compromises. And that's great. Um, but at a certain point, um, then you have to decide, you know, are, are you going to let real people continue to suffer or are you going to make, are you going to let the, what is that, don't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good yeah. or something uh, along those lines. And that's always, I think, a dilemma uh, for people like us. We can, we can hold out, and I think that's like religion too, we all hold out yeah. <laughs> a vision of what the, um, what the promised land is, but uh, it's the journey. Uh, and I would, you know, again, I say to say to the some of um, people, none of none of this toxicity that I hear about in DSA, um, current DSA, is new. What's new is the internet. I, I mean, we people had conflicts. Um, back in the day, and however, you know, we we might have conflicts, but then. When the time came for the to show a united front, we would show a united front, um, and uh, there wasn't the kind of faction fighting because everybody who who joined had already made a decision. They were willing to work within the Democratic Party. They didn't. They understood how the system is stacked against third parties, and um, so I think I think now you know things are beginning to crack open, and we have a, a more multi pronged strategy. And the internet is absolutely toxic from everything I gather. <laughs> it, it has been, it's been wonderful. You know, like I'm so excited. We can have fantastic graphics with religious socialism. We can get articles up really fast. Um, but I wouldn't even think, for instance, of opening up the comment section <laughs> because they, uh, you know, even even what we've we've in the past had to deal with it at yeah. open meetings. Um, so. Uh, same way with Democratic Left, you're not going to see a comment section there either. Uh, we used to get letters to the editor. We used to have letters to the editor. We might do that again in print. Um, but um, yeah, so so there's there's not as much of a sense of history. And I know when I went to the convention two years ago, when I went to the convention, I was like, oh my gosh, 
none of these people have ever been in a meeting where you actually had to debate things. Like, there's no politics, was the sense I had. It was all about, they were just enamored of procedure. And what they saw procedure as, as um, a way of blocking somebody else. But it wasn't about, let's have a debate. And that's what I was used to, like, let's talk politics. Let's talk what's realistic, what, um, what this means. And so I remember thinking to myself, okay, this is the largest convention we've ever had. I mean, the one two years prior to that had been 150 people, and then all of a sudden we had 800 delegates. And I thought, so in two years, they'll have more experience. But in two years, we doubled in size. So all the people <laughs> who showed up at this most recent one were, were brand new. And they, too, were enamored of, of blocking people rather than advancing a political discussion. And I think Linda Sarsour spoke at the, um, on Saturday, and, and at one point she said, what's with you people? There are, there are people dying in the streets right outside of this hotel, homeless people lying on grates here, or what, and, and you're spending four hours talking about the order of the agenda? Uh, you know, like, get real, uh, basically. And I, I was trying to think, like, so why is this happening? And I thought, well, there are a couple reasons. Um, we're being infiltrated by other groups who see where the action is and they want to be part of it and they'd like to take it over. We're being infiltrated by government uh, provocateurs, for, for want of a better word. And we have people who have grown up in a political wasteland. I mean, think about what it's been like for the last 20, 30 years. And I, I thought, has, any, has anybody ever taken a civics class? Do they understand how how democratic organizations work. And, um, and so I, I, after the convention, I happened to meet someone who, who taught political science at a, at a uh, university. And I said, so I'm just curious, when the young people come in, what's their, and she said, oh no, they've never had a civics class. They have no idea of how things work in the, in the real world, you know? <laughs> like, and, and she said, I feel like I'm teaching seventh grade civics when I should be teaching college level political mm -hmm. science um, and so I don't know like what they when so, so it's a sense of just that that for a lot of people this is the first time they've been in that kind of an organization and it's they're very excited about it mm. but they haven't quite found their footing um, as in what 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 do you see as missing like a sense of how to navigate and productively navigate political difference towards like a common agenda common goal is that kind of what you're thinking referring to? Yeah, I mean, I guess I was, um, it used, uh, because I didn't come out of that background, uh, I looked at every meeting as an opportunity to learn something new. I see. And every workshop I ever went to, and every national executive, most of the time I was on staff, so I wasn't actually, I mean, I didn't say, you know, as a staff member, I, I didn't feel like I could ever say anything, uh, except give, you know, a staff report or whatever. Um, but you would listen to people give you a history of the whole, you know, whatever was going on in Europe, and they knew all the different socialist <laughs> aspects of it, and or even in the United States, and um, and then people would say, no, but if we do this, this will happen, and, and they weren't always right or anything, but you always felt like you were learning something, mm. and um, you know, we just. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it at the, at the convention um, in Most August, recently. for okay. instance, four hours to, on just the terms of the agenda, just the order of the agenda, right? And there were people who had... It was like the whole convention. The whole convention. Wow. There were a thousand people there, and we had to listen to people use parliamentary procedure to block anything from happening, right? So, so again, I could not really tell if this was purposeful sabotage or naivete. But what it meant was that at a certain point, we had other things. We actually had some political content. We had speakers who had, big name speakers, who had made time in their lives to get plane tickets to come to Atlanta to speak to us. And people were like, well, I think we should just abolish that plenary because you know it's much more important to decide whether point number one or point number two is coming on the agenda. <laughs> and, and we actually did abolish one whole plenary, uh, and 
and for instance, Linda Sarsour, who, who um, you know, is a very dynamic speaker. Sarah Nelson, uh, the head of the, uh, the Flight Attendants Union, incredibly dynamic. There was a woman there from uh, the Oakland Teachers um, who had been on strike. They all got to speak at 4 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon uh, when half the people had left the room because they were totally exhausted from these parliamentary. So here was a chance to learn something from people. Um, and everyone was too tired to, <laughs> to do it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then there was a whole panel that never got to speak. And these were local activists from all around the country. And, and the disregard for their time um, was, was striking to me that, that people thought they didn't have anything to learn from them. Um, but that it was more important to move your little agenda item, um, which again I think I think comes out of powerlessness and and not um, not having the experience uh, of working in an organization. So, um, or maybe it is totally sabotage. I, I really I honestly don't know. Yeah. Um, and uh, so. I was never in Students for a Democratic Society. I mean, I lived in a part of the country where I didn't even know what it was. I, actually, I, I learned about it in a college class. I remember reading a, reading a paper by Todd Gitlin, who lives you know a block away from me, and I didn't had no idea who Todd Gitlin was. Or at that time, he was probably like twenty five or something. And we read his paper. We discussed it in class. And then ten years later, I met him. <laughs> you know, and and. Um, so I never was part of that. A lot of the older people were, and what they know is how easy it is, how fragile. Like, we may seem like we're really big at 60,000, and we are for the left because it has been destroyed and, and the, the attacks on the left have just been incredibly vicious. Um, but they, SDS was bigger, and it was destroyed with internecine warfare. So. I think those of us who are older are, want to keep the organization together. We want to negotiate these differences. And so far, I would say the overwhelming majority of, of people in D DSA also want that. Yeah. I, I think that what we see on the internet is a very small, sure. small group. Um, so uh, so I'm, I'm very hopeful. Uh, you know, I think we're, <laughs> we're at, I may sound, uh, you know, a little, a little pessimistic or something, but I, I think, you know, we're right at this very, very exciting moment. Uh, it's horrible for the country what's going on. Yeah. And I am not, um, I am not one of those who thinks that the worse things get, the better it is for the left. Because if, if Donald Trump were not president, we would be perhaps half our size. Bernie still, it was Bernie and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, their victories were what fueled us. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump gave us that extra bump, right? Yep. But it was, they were the ones who stood up and said, I'm a democratic socialist, and this is what yeah. that means to me. And that attracted people. It was a positive message. It wasn't like the anti-Trump. Um, yeah, and interestingly, that, both are, you know, in different ways religious. Right, right. yeah. Jewish yeah. and Catholic. Um, I want to transition a little bit towards talking about your hopes for religion and socialism. And you are the national coordinator. Well, is that not really. Uh, okay. You know, interesting. You would ask about the committee because at, at one with the old DSA, we had different commissions. There was a labor commission. There was a there was a religion socialism commission. And in order to be a commission, you had to have a certain number of members, and you had to. I think the labor group had their own website. Um, they even put out a newsletter too. There was a feminist commission. They put out a newsletter. Mm. We put out a newsletter. And then um, as the organization got smaller and smaller, but then, you know, we, we too um, weren't doing as much. And then when it grew again, the National Political Committee said, well, we just can't have a million different commissions. Like you have to be chartered as a commission. It sort of started from scratch again. So then we became uh, the working group. And, you know, we have we just have a little thing. When you join DSA, uh, there's a thing that says, what are you interested in? And one of the things is religion and socialism. And um, 
every week I get two or three people who say they're interested. And right now we're up to almost 600 people on a mailing list. Um, and we've just been encouraging them to start their own groups. And there are groups that have started. As, as far as I'm concerned, if the only thing you do is what Bernie did, which make it, which is to make that word something you can say out loud to people <laughs> in your church or your synagogue or your temple, you know, whatever, um, then you're doing a good thing because then you're <laughs> opening up their minds and eventually spreading the good news. you're spreading the good news, spreading the gospel, so to speak. Um, and the fact, I mean, at the convention, it was so humbling. We had a little meeting, uh, you know, religion and socialism people, but it came at like 7.30 at night, right, on a Saturday night in Atlanta, and there were five other things going on at the same time. And at, and, and at the end of our, our meeting, all the restaurants were closed, like all of us who'd been at the meeting didn't even get to eat. Um, but, but the people who came to the meeting and who lived in the South, you know, talked about having their meetings and people with guns showing up to intimidate, you know, just standing outside with mm. signs, you know, socialists go home or social, we don't want socialists here or whatever, and how it was hard to find meetings. I mean, meeting space in small towns is easier to get, but if you're a socialist in a town where everyone's, you know, where they allow concealed carry or whatever, um, it's a little harder to show up for the meeting. And, um, I was so inspired by that that there were people and a lot of uh, a lot of religious socialists these days, of course, are working uh, on immigration issues. Uh, and you know, we we in New York and and also other chapters too are working with the Reverend Barber's Poor People's Campaign. Um, so I have there's great potential out there, and I think the left, you know, the left has a tradition of being hostile to religion. And I think. DSOC was less hostile, um, probably because Michael Harrington used to joke that he was head of the Catholic Atheist Conference, you know, caucus, and he had worked with Dorothy Day at the Catholic Worker. He then found his quote true religion with with the socialists, but he always had great respect um, for people with religious um, beliefs and. And I think that made us very different from a lot of other left-wing organizations, that there was mm -hmm. room uh, for people with religious beliefs. And I, I think there's great potential there. Um, Do you see one of those commitments as more primary, like religious? You know, some people on this podcast are like, I'm primarily a clergy person, I'm primarily a Christian, whatnot, and that informs then how I understand my socialist politics. For some people, it's maybe more reverse. And for some people, it's like all very intimately integrated that there's no quite mm -hmm. separation. Where would you situate yourself? Yeah, I'd, I'd say more with the religion. I, I have greater faith that the church is going to be here no matter what. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we, will, we will evolve. It will evolve. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been around for, I'm talking about the Christian church. Other Others have yes. been around even longer, right? Um, but they all have a a longer track record than socialism, uh, although, you know, Christian socialism goes back to 2,000 years, probably, um, although it was never never called that. So, yeah, I, I uh, sometimes think I don't um, I don't look for my community in in the socialist movement because mm -hmm. I've seen anyone who's been in it has seen the, the the splits the endless and and of course it's it's it like in religious it does, i was going to say uh, protestantism is is not immune to this <laughs> yeah. at all right, right. and i do go to a very um you know i go to an extremely liberal church um that is open we have people in it who are Buddhist, Catholic, Jews. You know, people feel comfortable there. But it is still a Christian church, and it is a sense of it has a great sense of community. You know, if I went somewhere else, um, I probably a lot of people who leave the church that I belong to go to other communities, and they end up with Unitarianism um, because that's the closest thing they can find where they find compatible political people. Um, but they find they do find the community there, and I think it's hard for the socialist movement. In the past, I remember when I joined, you know, like especially the ones who came from Europe, the refugees. Um, 
would say, well, you know, when I was growing up, we had the Red Falcons, we went to camp, we went to summer camp, we had a, a real community in Europe of socialists. And I think the communists had that here, they had summer camps. Um, I don't think the socialists had it quite as much. Um, but a lot of them did, did grow up with that. And I think we're trying to, I think that the younger people are trying to recreate that. You know, we, there was a group that was doing like a socialist Sunday school, you know, where, where they, the parents got together mm -hmm. with, their, with their children on Sundays. But again, you know, these weren't people rooted in any kind of religious community because they were free on Sundays to, to get together and read, um, you know, socialist stories to their children and make banners for, um, for demonstrations, all of which is a good, you know, it's yeah. a good thing. And um, so, so yeah, I mean, I would say that I sometimes think like, oh, if, I mean, I, I have great hopes for DSA and so on, but, but in my worst moments, I think if DSA imploded, for instance, let's say it, what happened to SDS happened to it mm. or whatever, I would still have the church and I would still have um, a lot of people who are interested in social justice. And, what does the church you know, give you that socialist movements do not, does not give you, and also vice versa, what do socialist spaces, maybe give is the wrong word, but you know what I'm grasping after, that right. church, church does not. Yeah, okay, so I think the church gives you um, the long view. Yeah. <laughs> very, very long view. <laughs> very, very long view. And the sense of um, the journey, that the journey is our home. I, I think there's that mm. phrase. And, um, you know, I think Michael Walzer, uh, when he has talked about the Jewish political tradition, he's often talked about, you know, we don't have to complete the work, but we're obligated to continue it. Right. We cannot um, desist and, from it. Right, and I and I think that's that's certainly true about socialism too. But um, you know, as long as I'm still in the liberal wing of Protestantism, there, there's not a sense of doctrinal rigidity that you sometimes see in the socialist movement. Like, oh, if you're not a Marxist, then you know, forget it, or or that sort of thing, you know, <laughs> or if you're not a council communist, then you're, you know, and, and, fundamentalism. Uh, yeah, right, there's a kind of fundamentalism on the left that uh, that I'm not interested in, and that DS, DSA was never interested in either, and, um, and, and there are now people coming in from different traditions, and, you know, I think it's, it's great to have all these different ideas, uh, and if we're a big, you know, we talk about being a big tent organization, so uh, as long as we don't, I think it really is important because I, I think there are forces um, that are out to destroy us, uh, either from the left or the right, or um, the United States has had, has had a really, it's an interesting history. I mean, I think we are one of the countries where some of some of the most violent attacks on the left have happened here. Now, certainly in France also, <laughs> and in other countries. But, you know, the, the, the viciousness toward labor unions uh, is, is just, most of that not, yeah. not, we have never learned uh, in school, and you know, you only learn it later. Um, I remember going to one national convention one time and seeing a documentary on Mother Jones, and there was like a heap of, I mean, a, a pile of dead bodies of miners. And I, I, nobody had ever shown me a picture like that when mm -hmm. I was in school. So the, those were, that was what our forebears were up against. Yeah. And, um, and, and now, you know, the horrors that we see under, under Trump. What I was starting to say earlier was that had we, so yeah, we're at 60,000 now and a lot of that's Trump, but we would still be growing because of Bernie and right. because of, um, and we would be fighting different battles. Um, right. right now, you, you can't, every day, it's just a new assault. <laughs> and you can hardly, and, yeah. and so I don't blame people for like, oh, hey, you know, I tried for two years and now I'm out of here. Um, well, I do blame them, but <laughs> it's like, you have to just pick something and say, okay, let me work on that, um, and I think that's what what DSA tries to do. They, you know, working on Bernie, working on Medicare for all, working on, on strengthening the labor movement. Because if that's not strong, then I don't think there's much hope for everybody else. So, um, 
we we would be fighting different, you know, we would not, yeah, Obama got deported a lot of people, but he didn't tear families apart. I mean, he didn't, yeah, uh, at, at the level, at the right. level that we have now, is, is uh, <laughs> just unbelievable. Right, right. Um, I you, mean, yeah. And yeah. you volunteered the new sanctuary clinic, that's yeah. probably worth pointing out. It's, the second part of my question was kind of vice versa. You mean you go to a church that is fairly involved in activism, it was fairly progressive. Why not leave it at that? You know, why go the extra step to be also involved in a socialist space? I mean, you sort of answered that question, but I wanted to kind of ask you the reverse. Right. Well, because socialism connects the dots, I think, as you said earlier. Mm -hmm. There's a framework there, and you understand that there's why things are happening, that this is not an accident. <laughs> you know? There is a design. <laughs> There's a design there, not intelligent design, <laughs> yeah. but there is a design. And that design is, is profit. I mean, because yeah. there's no other way, profit and power, I and mean, there's no mm -hmm. other way to explain it. I, I, none of these policies make any sense. Our foreign policy doesn't Our make foreign sense. policy doesn't make any yeah, sense. No. None of it makes any sense. But then when you see it from a socialist perspective, it does, um, yeah. it does make sense. So, um, you know, and church will explain it in terms of the demonic, the, the principalities, and so Evil, on. Evil, immoral. Yeah. But yeah, and and of course, all of that has existed. I mean, it's not like, uh, like capitalism suddenly invented evil. I mean, feudalism was pretty bad too, and that's not. I have zero desire to go back to some mythical past um, of serfdom or anything like that. So, um, you know, I grew up in. Um, when segregation was legal and, um, you know, and, and we all very, you know, naively thought, oh, once segregation was ended, everything was going to be fine. We didn't, we had no, white people had no clue. I mean, other people knew, obviously. Uh, so it's been like peeling, you know, the skin off the onion, like we just find. And there are times when I think like a lot of what we're witnessing is the dying gasp of, I mean, we're in a collapsing yeah. society. It's the dying gasp of capitalism. But what is going to come next and it's not hmm. not written in stone that it's going to be socialism I mean it could could still be hmm. a lot worse I, one of my mentors in the in the movement when I first joined uh, you know she said the left makes um, two mistakes all the time they say they wouldn't dare and it can't get worse and both of those things are not true hmm. uh, they will dare and it will get worse <laughs> but we have to keep fighting um, so that's, I think that's what's, again, they're very connected. Religion and socialism both have those perspectives. But yeah. I think it's the way that socialism um, explains the structures, uh, not as individual sin necessarily, but, I mean, if you think of sin as being separated from God rather than individual actions and so on, then and, and maybe we're separated from our best selves, but but socialism understands the structures. Yeah, maybe a maybe a slightly depressing note to end. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> but but I do think it's what you're saying is totally true. I think part of what draws people to religion is a kind of like here is a theory of the universe mm. and life and matter and afterlife. And I think socialism provides a sort of temporal mm -hmm. um, parallel that can feel like okay, this explains history. Now we can tell what happens in the future. Right. Um, this is a lens of interpreting like things going on around you. Um, yeah, I think I, I, I intuitively feel the connection, but sometimes I struggle to articulate. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for spending time and walking us through all this history. And um, at some point I'll have to get you to write down all the things you do so I can put it in your bio <laughs> for the podcast episode. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Okay, well, thank you. That was Maxine Phillips. She leads DSA's Religion and Socialism Working Group nationally, and she's a current volunteer editor of Democratic Left and active member of Judson Memorial Church. If you enjoyed that conversation, check out our other episodes and the Religion and Socialism blog. Um, you can also um, contact us if you'd like to join or start a Religion and Socialism Working Group in your city at religiouscialism.org. Once again, you're listening to Religion and Socialism, a product of the Democratic Socials of America. This podcast was produced by Devin Brisky. I'm Sarah Neal. The music is by Hugo. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon. Thank you all so much for your support, for sharing this podcast, for supporting us on Patreon. Really appreciate it.